Hey everybody, welcome into a dual podcast between the Cyclone Scoop and Swarmcast from 24-7 Sports. I'm Alex Halstead from the Iowa State site on 24-7 Sports, joined here by David Eicholt from the Iowa site. And uh, David, a, a big game coming up for both Iowa and Iowa State, the much-anticipated Cyhawk rivalry. So uh, good to be on with you, and uh, hopefully we can provide the listeners something, uh, some knowledge before kickoff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said, I think this is the most highly anticipated Cyhawk game ever. I mean, college game day is coming to Ames. The nation's eyes are going to be on it. Uh, and I, I think this is just great for the rivalry in general, because I know a few years ago, people were talking about how Iowa should maybe try to get rid of the rivalry. But I, I was saying over on the side saying, I think we want Iowa State to, you know, improve when Matt Campbell has done just that. And now now the stakes are even higher with this rivalry. And I, I think it's just great for the state. We can't call it a top 25 matchup. I think it was very, very close to being the first ever Cyhawk matchup uh, between two top 25 teams. But while Iowa comes in, I think at number 19 in the AP poll, Iowa State uh, falls during the bye week to number 26, technically, the first receiving vote. So not a top 25 matchup, but like you said, they're arguably the most anticipated in, in the series history. I mean, you could probably go back to when there was kind of a, a little break in the series and then it finally came back. I'm sure that was a big one. There's been some other big ones, uh, but uh, this in quite some time is, is the most anticipated, especially where both programs are. And I think the, the fact that college game days in town adds element to that. And I know over in Iowa City uh, this week, uh, those players kind of downplayed it. Iowa State players uh, here have downplayed it too, saying it's pretty you know businesslike and that you know, for them, I think Campbell's kind of shielding him, you know, from all this hype a little bit. Uh, plus, I think, you know, the word from the players is, you know, this is something for the fans, but these players are never really going to see much of it anyway. So it was that kind of the feeling over in Iowa City is that, you know, this is a big matchup, but game day and all that really doesn't add much fuel to the fire. Yeah, you know, we, we talked to Makai Sargent starting running back yesterday, and he just said, look, I didn't even know college game day is coming to town. I don't even know what channel we're on. All I know is we're on TV. A couple other players said similar things. The closest thing that I heard about players being aware is Jimon Colbert, uh, starting uh, linebacker, just said, yeah, college game day is in town, but it's business-like approach. We're going to try to stop Iowa State's RPOs. We're going to just stay locked into what we need to do. Trash talking was kept to a minimum. I mean, I know Iowa is usually not the type to provide poster board material, but I, I think they know that they got a challenge ahead, especially with the way Matt Campbell has started to turn around Iowa State. And I mean, I've been a fan of what Campbell's done there. It's been it's been really fun to watch. And again, I think it's great for the state. So I think Iowa's just buckled in their focus. And I think they know that if they win this game, I feel like the whole season kind of changes for Iowa because they have a early good win on the road. I know it's a rivalry game, but they get the confidence on the road. Then they get into the bye week. Then they uh, host Middle Tennessee State. And then they have some more confidence going in uh, to the big house to take on Michigan October 5th. So I think Iowa's not downplaying this at all. I don't think they're going to provide any trash talking material. I think they're just locked in as ever. And I think Nate Stanley and a couple of the other senior leaders, uh, you know, are, are, are the sole uh, responsibility of them. And they've, they've done a good job so far. Yeah. It feels the same way over here. I know game day is getting a lot of attention here, um, but I think it is, does feel like more of a, a fan type thing right now. Um, you know, Campbell's always been good about keeping some of those things in house, uh, in terms of, you know, kind of shielding them from what media is saying one way or another. You know, last year they started the season one and three and they still win eight games. And that only happens uh, by them really kind of ignoring all the doubts that people probably had through the first month last season. And I think we talked to offensive lineman Josh Kniffel and he said, you know, he grew up watching it. But he said, you know, 
as players, they're not going to see who Corso puts on, you know, what what head he puts on, and they're not going to see any of that, and so it doesn't really matter to them. Um, so I do think it's a good deal for, you know, this rivalry. I think Kirk Ferentz said it from looking at his comments. Matt Campbell said it uh, here in Ames, and that that's, you know, it's good for the Seahawk rivalry because everybody nationally thinks of, you know, Auburn and uh, Alabama or Michigan and, and Ohio State, and they think of those rivalries, but – this one's not played on rivalry week later in the year. It's uh, kind of a little bit different. So I think it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Um, so I think it's good from that sense. But like you said, I don't think it really affects uh, either team because I think this game's already kind of hyped for a lot of different reasons. One, because what you mentioned, I think it's an important game for the direction of where Iowa season goes. It's important for Iowa State, too, from the standpoint of, you know, Matt Campbell the last two years has gone – eight and four and seven and five in the regular season. And neither of those years has he had the benefit of a three and oh non-conference slate. Um, you know, and they haven't won, they haven't started non-conference three and oh since 2012. So, you know, if he can beat Iowa, that puts him in a position where they can go three and oh in non-conference and sets them up for, you know, the type of season they want to have. So not to say it's make or break for, for either team, you know, they can both, you know, be fine in, in the big 10 or big 12, but it does feel like it can really set a different tone, you know, and obviously adds that win to the expectations a little bit. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think the big thing for Iowa hanging into this game, though, too, is some of the players, some of the best players on Iowa, uh, you know, are from out of state. They, they didn't grow up watching the Cyhawk rivalry. They didn't really understand the magnitude of it. Uh, again, going back to Makai Sargent, he said that it's the Super Bowl of Iowa. Like, this is the game where everybody gets – extra excited for i mean all the anticipations on it the state basically stops to watch this game uh he say he found that out last year during warm-ups when the stands were almost full just watching him warm up he said that it, it's just different uh obviously he hasn't been to jack trice uh iowa quarterback nate stanley obviously he had the five touchdowns in his first career road start there two years ago said he can build some confidence off what he did two years ago but it's a whole new Iowa State team. Matt, again, he credited Matt Campbell and uh, what what Iowa State's basically been able to do with their defense specifically. And I, I don't think he's expecting a shootout. I think Nate Stanley's kind of expecting maybe a little bit similar to last year, kind of that just grinded out game that maybe ends in like a twenty to seventeen fashion. Uh, but he just said, you know, I know I can do it there before, but he knows that Iowa State's going to come out in full force, especially with all the extra attention. And he knows that the expectations in Ames are, you know, they're high. And a win against Iowa would just do, I think, wonders, uh, like you said, for Iowa State as they try to gear up for the Big 12 slate. Yeah, I feel like the defenses on both sides have the advantage in this game. But it also seems like every year I, I feel one way or another about either who might win or how the game might go. It's completely different. I mean, this game seems so hard to predict. Uh, Iowa, Iowa's been favored in you know really the, most of the last two decades in this series, uh, and yet over the last I think 20 years it's like something like 11 to nine Iowa, and so this game kind of goes either way whether someone's a major favorite or an underdog. Right now, I think it's trending towards Iowa being a two and a half point favorite in this game. You know, it'll probably end up around two and a half or three points in Iowa's favor uh, in terms of Las Vegas, and I guess now in Iowa with people being able to bet, but it doesn't seem like that really matters much in this game. And so I feel like it's going to be this defensive game. Uh, but then I can't be shocked if something like 2017 happens and it's this big shootout. Because I think back in 2017, I probably felt the same way. I, if I remember right, I thought it was going to be a lower scoring game. And then that happened. So it's so hard to predict this game. But <laughs> it, do you agree that, you know, you think it's going to be a defensive game? Maybe. 
Maybe. And, you know, like, like you said, I almost wouldn't be shocked if it was a shootout. Uh, I, I'm really interested to see how Iowa State plays defensively against Iowa because th- this Iowa team, just watching them play, the players downplayed it when I asked them. The coordinators have as well. But this Iowa offense just looks different than it has in past years. The most amazing stat to me was I was looking just through the numbers against last week uh, when they played Rutgers. Iowa only targeted tight ends twice, and they didn't have a reception. Yet Iowa scored 30 points despite having horrible field position, first of all, because the Rutgers punter would get my Heisman vote after what he did last week. It was the most amazing punting display I've ever seen. Just not the Big but Ten Stan- special teams player of the week. Yeah, that uh, – <laughs> The uh, the Big Ten tweet got ratioed by Iowa fans saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you know, I mean, Iowa's thrown six touchdowns to wide receivers through two games this year. They only threw 10 total wide receiver touchdown, the touchdowns to wide receivers last year. The Iowa offense just looks different. So I'm interested to see how Iowa State plays uh, Iowa's as opposed to they have in past years. So I think if Iowa gets their game going through the air, and Brock Purdy gets protection. And if Iowa can't defend the RPO and a guy like Brees Hall steps up, by the way, Brees Hall is going to be a really good player, I think, in the future. Uh, he's going to get a taste of the rivalry this weekend. But like you said, I wouldn't be shocked if 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 they get the RPOs going and Nate Stanley can start hitting those deep passes. I mean, we could see a 40-38 type shootout. Yeah, that's, a, that's the thing is I think both teams are going to go in with the game plan of playing a lower possession game, grinded out game. I think both coaches, Matt Campbell, I know in the big 12, it's, it's this spread out and everyone from afar thinks it's this high scoring league. And it is, but Campbell has really liked to play some of these lower possession games. They've played like eight possession type games with TCU and stuff. And it seems like, you know, obviously Iowa, I think is similar in that regard. Whereas I think both Ferentz and Campbell probably will enter this game wanting to play a lower possession game. But if, if a team takes a shot and it puts a game in a certain situation, it feels like both teams could really open up their offense. So it does feel like it could start that way where, you know, maybe it does look like a defensive game, but a few things can all of a sudden open up both playbooks. And that's what's going to uh, be interesting. Um, before we get into maybe some of the matchups and stuff, do you want to maybe for both sides, I mean, people people um, listening over on the Swarmcast probably are very familiar with this, but – uh, over on the Cyclone Scoop side, they may be not as familiar with what Iowa's done so far. What have you learned about the Iowa team through two games, and, and what do you think the biggest questions are that you still have about them as they make their way through non-conference play? Yeah, you know, I, I think the thing is right now, again, it's not against great competition, Miami, Ohio, even though they've been, you know, relatively toward the top in MAC and defense uh, and against Rutgers, and, you know, Rutgers is in the Big Ten, I guess, but – I was been able to run the football more effectively this year. I think that was the number one thing going into uh, into spring practice and into fall camp was they need to be able to run the football football better because 3.95 yards per carry does not lead to success in Iowa. They've been able to do that. Makai Sargent has learned to become a bit more of a receiving threat. Um, the other thing, the biggest thing also I've learned is Nate Stanley's learned how to settle down. He, I, I asked him post game. Uh, how he's been able to take pressure off himself. And you just said, last year, I tried to make too many plays. Uh, I put too much pressure on myself. I need to play within my role because I have guys around me that know how to contribute and can contribute. Uh, Because like I said, last year, Nate Stanley only had one touchdown through two games. He's already got six through two, uh, two games with no interceptions and no passes that should have been intercepted. So his decision-making has been better. Uh, I've also learned the Iowa offensive line has been, 
pretty stellar despite Alaric Jackson going, but I'm interested to see how they do against, um, you know, Marcel Spears Jr. against the Ray Lima uh, freshman redshirt freshman Tyler Linderbaum's going to get a huge test um, with Lima. The other thing I've learned is Iowa secondary is still capable of getting a lot of interceptions, but they are awfully thin right now. And I'm interested to see if Iowa State's really going to attack them over the top. I know they didn't do that um, against Northern Iowa, but with Iowa starting free safety out and at least three of the top six defensive backs out against Iowa State and could be four of the top six defensive backs out, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you know Matt Campbell really does open up that playbook uh, and tries to go deep. But Iowa's wide receivers are better. The run game's getting more established. But I still think there are some questions, you know, kind of in that secondary and a little bit, a little bit at linebacker. If Iowa's going to play that four-two-five defense, which they did a lot last year, that really sparked their comeback after the uh, uh, the Wisconsin lost. So, or if Iowa's just going to stick with their traditional four-three. Yeah, the the receiver piece that you mentioned is one of the things that Matt Campbell brought up. Uh, when talking to us, you know, to open the week is that he thinks this is the most, uh, I think he said, athletic or talented receiver group that they've had, you know, that he's seen. Um, I think he's seen some Iowa teams, uh, he said, back to when he was in um, in the MAC at Toledo because they would prepare for other MAC teams and they'd be going through film. And Iowa has traditionally played a MAC team in non-conference. And so he's seen them even before Iowa State. But especially at his time at Iowa State, you know, that's what stood out to him is just the athleticism that those receivers have. I think Iowa, obviously, in recent years has been thought of as the tight end team with, you know, TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant. And and so maybe the receivers get lost in the mix a little bit. And I know Nick Easley was good last year, but it just seems like they're a lot more athletic and capable there. So I think that's the thing that stood out to Campbell a little bit offensively for them. And it's what's going to be interesting because – you know, so far, like you said, the tight ends haven't really been involved very much this year, right? So it's it's a lot been more been based on that run game and, and those receivers. Yeah, you know, with that being said, though, I do think Iowa's tight ends can contribute. Nate Weeding, the fifth-year former walk-on, uh, was extremely impressive through, uh, you know, the spring scrimmage we got to watch and the fall open practice we got to watch. He, he had about nine catches, made some big boy plays, but Iowa just hasn't targeted him. Sean Beyer, the third tight end, from that Noah Fant, TJ Hawkinson class. Um, he has three catches for 30 yards, made a couple really nice grabs in the season opener. But again, Iowa just really hasn't targeted them that much because the wide receivers have been so impressive. Emir Smith-Marset, it seems the lights kind of clicked with him. Uh, and I know he's excited about getting back to Ames because he, you know, he, that's kind of where his career took off was in that game after that triple overtime uh, catch. Brandon Smith is... He just draws a ton of pass interferences. Tyrone Tracy, Nico Regani have been great route runners, and they're starting to kind of get together. And I'm interested to see if Oliver Martin, the Mich the former Iowa State West standout and the former Michigan receiver, uh, I wonder how much run he's actually going to get in this game. A little bit slower, I think, last game. He, he suffered a minor, uh, a minor shoulder injury during fall camp, so they've kind of limited that, and he's learning three different positions. But uh, I'm interested to see if, you know, Kirk kind of throws him in there and sees what he can do uh, against this Iowa State defense. So I, I, I'm interested to see again how, how Iowa State can really come out and defend him because Kirk said yesterday about Iowa State's defense that it's such a unique scheme and it's something I don't think they've played, you know, in the last few years. They don't really get to play that often. Rutgers is kind of close to it, but it's still nowhere near the same thing. It's just similar alignment. Yeah, that's what makes this game so interesting is I think both teams – uh, face another team 
that is a lot different than maybe what they get in conference play. You know, Iowa State, you know, they're going to see a four-man front, obviously, in conference play. But, you know, the Big 12 is shifting a lot more to these spaced-out defenses. And it sounds like last week Iowa was a lot more 4-3 than some of that three three-man front that I know they've practiced or, or done at times. So I think just the, the contrasting styles a little bit or, or them seeing something new um, makes it unique. But also I think Matt Campbell said that while that, that's the case maybe, they since they play each other every year, they kind of know what each other wants to do. And so neither neither coaches really change what they want to do. So you know now going on four years of the same, same Iowa State staff going against them, they both know each other pretty well at the same time. So – that's what makes it really interesting. And I think the point that Ferentz made, I guess, uh, can you know lead to me rounding up what Iowa State might look like is these early season games make it so hard because you know you look at Iowa State, they've only played one game, then a bye. So what I don't think we know here, you know, covering Iowa State, what to expect. Iowa, I think, probably has an idea what to expect in st- terms of style, but that game was so hard to predict. You know, Iowa State against Northern Iowa, they had ten drives in regulation. Five of them got across midfield but didn't result in points. They missed a field goal at the 13-yard line. Um, they went for it on fourth and one and had an incompletion uh, on the flat route on the UNI 41. There were three other times they punted from across midfield. So it was such a weird game where the offense actually moved the ball, had almost 400 yards of total offense before overtime, and got across midfield, like I said, a handful of times but didn't score. And so I think there's, there's some positive feelings from Iowa State that, hey, the offense was this close. But it's also a lot of questions. Why wasn't Brock Purdy running? Uh, what is Iowa State's offensive line going to look like against a guy like A.J. Epinesa? Um, can they be efficient enough to put up the points against Iowa? So I think there's a lot of things that people maybe didn't look deep enough into against that I game, but also a lot of questions that we just don't know because they went from that game to a bye week. So it really makes this game even more interesting, just that dynamic, I think. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting, too, to kind of watch people debate is who had the advantage? Was it Iowa State having that early bye and having a week of rest? Or was it Iowa for running the second game, getting a second game to kind of help clean up the mistakes? And, you know, I, I've kind of thought about that myself. And I think Iowa had the slight advantage this week. I think if if this game took place later in the year and then then I think Iowa State has the advantage. But because of they didn't get that Iowa State didn't get that second week. Uh, second weekend to really try to clean up the things uh, that that went wrong against Northern Iowa and Iowa did. I I somehow think that that's I do think that Iowa has a slight advantage with that. But I do want to remind people of this because I I think this is getting a tad overblown. Uh, people are like you know people are saying that maybe Iowa wins by double digits by two touchdowns because if Iowa State can barely hang with Northern Iowa then Iowa should you know break the doors down. People forget 2009 when Iowa started off, I think nine and zero, uh, before Ricky Stanzi got hurt against Northwestern. Uh, they still won Orange Bowl, but Iowa had to block back-to-back field goals against Northern Iowa to win that game. So I, I think it's I think people should kind of take a step back and not really try to read too much into Iowa State's game against Northern Iowa. It was the first game of the year, and they were trying to replace big-time playmakers like Hakeem Butler, like David Montgomery. So I caution people to think uh, that Iowa's going in and they should win by, you know, double digits because Iowa's had, you know, a similar experience and then they turned off an additional eight wins in a row after blocking back-to-back field goals. Yeah, I think this is my seventh time covering this game uh, as a media member. I've been around it a few other years and I feel like I'm always wrong with my prediction for this game. It just, it seems <laughs> like it's so hard to predict that. 
I mean, I've seen uh, a bad Iowa State team beat Iowa and then go on to not be good at all. And it just seems like, you know, even if Iowa State isn't good in a year, you know, under, say, Paul Rhodes, that they won some of those games, oddly enough. So it just – it feels like a, such a weird game. Um, and that, that's what kind of makes it interesting, too. And uh, the, the debate about who um, has the advantage for that bye week is interesting because last year the debate was um, – does it help that uh, Iowa doesn't have any film because Iowa State's game was canceled, or does it hurt Iowa yeah. State more that they didn't have a game? I think it proved. Um, I think the thought going into that game from my side, I think it proved you know accurate. Was it? It probably hurt Iowa State more not to play a game at all um, because they looked pretty um, last year in that game at Iowa City. They they just they didn't look very crisp at all, especially the offensive line play, and, and that was a problem early in the season, regardless. But. It seemed like that really hurt Iowa State last year, not playing a game before having to go play a, a really good Big Ten team. Whereas this year, it's a little different because they do have a game. But yeah, it's interesting. You know, did they? Matt Campbell said he liked the bye week that they were able to clean stuff up, and and that's you know even before they you know barely beat you and I, he said he had liked that how that was set up. Uh, but yeah, I guess we won't really find out you know how much it helped them until we get to get to Saturday at Jack Trace Stadium. So I guess, do you want to jump into some matchup stuff or injury talk or, or what do you think yeah, is good you know, to I, move I, on to? I think we should jump in some injury talk quick and then we can move on to matchups because then at least people know who's going to be in, who's going to be out when we're actually talking about matchups. Yeah, sounds good. Do you want to go first with the Iowa injury report? Just kind of let people know, um, you know, what is the outlook? Because it does seem like, you know, that was a big part of Kirk Ferentz's opening press conference this week is uh, it seemed like Iowa got banged up against Rutgers. Yeah, you know, they really did. I, I do think that the biggest sigh of relief for Iowa was the fact that uh, starting uh, strong safety, Geno Stone, is going to be available. Uh, he did roll his ankle late uh, in the fourth quarter against Rutgers, but he did a full workout Sunday, and Kirk said, yeah, he's good to go. Uh, and that's massive because Iowa starting free safeties. True sophomore Kayvon Merriweather uh, is not going to play due to a sprained foot they suffered last Friday. Uh, other injury news as well. Again, more defensive backs. Uh, Riley Moss is out for at least three more weeks with a leg injury. No specifics really known there. And sophomore Julius Brents, uh, defensive back is going to be out as well. And he's Iowa's biggest defensive back at six foot three, 204 pounds. People are looking for him to take a big step forward this year, but looks like his year's kind of off to that, uh, slow start due to that. But I mean, again, that that means that at least three of Iowa's top six defensive backs are out. It could be four if uh, True Junior Matt Hankins is an, unable to go. He got a little bit dinged up uh, against Rutgers, came out of the game. Nobody really asked about him right away, uh, but he Kirk was asked yesterday, and he kind of avoided the question, didn't really say he was going to play, didn't say he was out. Uh, but I do think there's a big question mark there. The biggest thing I think for Iowa in terms of offensive line and trying to help contain, you know, Ray Lima and that front seven with Marcel Spears uh, and I, Mike and Mike Rose, who Rose played tremendous against Iowa last year. I remember uh, right guard Cole Banwart is going to be available. I'm not sure if he's going to start, but he is going to be in the rotation. And I would look for probably around eight to nine guys rotating on the offensive front. Other than that, Iowa's pretty healthy. I mean, the, the bulk of, the bulk of the damage for Iowa is just in that secondary. And Kirk even said there's more injuries in that defensive backfield. that are just not on the two deep. He didn't mention which specific players. So 
really, really thin margin for error uh, for Iowa right now. But everywhere else, I, I think Iowa's pretty pretty squared away on. Uh, before I go into the Iowa State side, what what did Iowa look like uh, without a Larrick Jackson? Did they do anything different? And, and I guess how did how did things go with with him out? Uh, I know he might be back after the bye week, but at least this one more game, it appears he's not going to go. Yeah, you know, I was actually pleasantly, you know, it's a pleasantly surprised to see what Iowa did uh, without him. And the, I think the biggest thing is it's Tristan Wirfs. I mean, he's a projected top 10 NFL pick. Uh, he he, used, he usually plays right tackle. He flipped a left tackle. Uh, and then they insert Levi, uh, Levi Paulson to right tackle. But Tristan Wirfs, there was a series last weekend where uh, he started off at left. He flipped over to right tackle for one play. And then switch back to left tackle for the next play. And just the versatility and the way he's kind of upped his game has been huge. I think Iowa's just rotations have really helped keep the offensive line fresh. Tyler Linderbaum did get blown up a couple times, but for a redshirt freshman who played defensive tackle until bowl prep last year, he's been, it's almost been unbelievable to watch actually just the amount of progress he makes, especially with his downfield willingness to go downfield and block lay out two or three guys in a play, but Iowa's offensive line looks bet a lot better than I thought it would, especially, you know, you lose a guy that's a potential first round draft pick in a Larry Jackson. Uh, a couple guys keep in mind are Levi Paulson, obviously, like I mentioned, Landon Paulson, uh, Cole Banwart is going to get some play and walk on Kyler shot is going to play. Uh, and even true freshman, Justin Britt, who's 11 months off tearing his ACL uh, in a senior year of high school. Could also get some play. Kirk Ferentz has been raving about him uh, basically ever since he's been allowed to. Said that he, his knowledge of uh, playing offensive line is even more than some third-year Iowa offensive lineman. So Kirk, Kirk's kind of an offensive line guru, and if he's kind of throwing out praise like that, you you don't just you don't just write it off. You kind of run with that quote. But I mean, again, I don't think they've played a defensive line or a front seven that's anywhere near as talented uh, as Iowa State, though. So I think this is the first true test, especially since. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, Iowa State held Northern Iowa. I believe it was uh, 30, 34 rushing yards on 31 carries. Yeah, something like that. It was that was yeah their best rush. Their rush defense was really what set them up well last year to have success in the Big 12. Was that it kind of started with their rush defense, and so that's we'll get to that in a second, I'm sure. But that's going to be one of the key matchups probably um, Saturday. But sticking with the offensive line point, then in talking about Iowa State injuries, that's really probably the one area that. Fans on both sides have to pay attention to as the game gets underway on Saturday. Iowa State uh, redshirt sophomore center Colin Newell has started the last 13 games dating back to last season. Um, he sprained his ankle, or I'm sorry, sprained his knee in the season opener. Um, we haven't got a lot of specifics beyond that. It was not as bad as Iowa State maybe feared when he first went down in overtime against Northern Iowa. Uh, but you know, even with the bye week, I think it's going to be tough for him to go. They're going to try to see if he, what he can do, how mobile he is, uh, because they do ask their center to do a lot in their offense. Uh, but I'd probably lean towards him not playing, but, you know, they, they haven't been, really been up front yet about what he's going to do. And so assuming Newell is out just for the fact of, you know, the discussion, um, there's really three guys they could do or they could put there. One is, you know, left tackle Julian Good-Jones. He started every game at center in 2017. He could always shift to center. Uh, Colin Olson, their left guard, I've heard, has worked some at center. And then Trevor Downing, their redshirt freshman uh, from Creston, Iowa. Uh, they've really raved about him. They think he's one of their top offensive linemen. Uh, he could play center as well. He's he's a guard, but he could play center. So 
by all accounts, you know, they're going to have to do some shuffling here. Uh, if it's just, you know, Newell is out, they could put someone like Colin Olsen there and then all of a sudden start Trevor Downing at left guard. Um, and they Or they could do some different things. So that's going to be probably the biggest thing as the game gets underway Saturday is one is Newell out there. And then if he's not, how much do they have to shuffle? Because to me, I don't know if you want to shuffle and move Julian Good-Jones just because you know, I think with the matchup with A.J. Epinesa, I don't know if you want to, you know, mix and match that left tackle too much. So uh, that's probably going to be the one interesting thing, I think, to watch. And that's really the big injury for Iowa State right now. Um, strong safety Braxton Lewis didn't play against you and I because of an undisclosed fall camp injury. He's ready to go, so he could start against uh, Iowa. That gives him more depth. Uh, they had Rice graduate transfer Justin Bickham there last week. He missed a few tackles, uh, made some plays. But I think Braxton Lewis, who started all 13 games last year, uh, probably gives them a little bit of an edge over um, over Bickham, you know, at that safety spot. And then other than that, Kane Nwangu, their running back and their kick returner, he entered last last game, uh, the season opener, with a banged up or tweaked hamstring. Then he hurt his shoulder in the game, uh, but he practiced last week. He's been practicing this week, and he should be good to go. So for the most part, that's one thing with the bye week. Iowa State has one less game, a few less early season injuries, but that Colin Newell one could be a big injury just because – you're talking about your starting center and you're talking about Iowa State's offensive line going against, um, you know, a really good defensive line, but also that could be the, one of the key matchups to this game. Yeah, no, for sure. And the biggest thing I was wondering about the Iowa State offensive line is how they're preparing for AJ Epinesa because Epinesa has seen so many double teams, even triple teams, but he Epinesa only had one tackle during the season opener, but he was arguably Iowa's most disruptive pass rusher. I mean, he was always in the backfield, always putting pressure, didn't get any hits, but you know, last weekend he wanted to kind of remind people like I'm, I'm a top 10, top five NFL draft prospect for a reason, despite being double teamed. He had four quarterback hurries, a sack, uh, just in the first half. And he also got a hand on, uh, McLean Carter Rutgers quarterbacks arm that threw made him throw an aired pass that was ultimately intercepted by, a. Uh, uh, Jimon Colbert. So I'm interested to see what Iowa State does. I, I think that they're going to utilize their tight end to kind of be that second blocker on Epinesa. But, you know, don't sleep on Chauncey Golston, the other defensive end on the other side. He's a guy who I think could break through this season. And I'd also look for Cedric Lattimore, who's been really stellar so far through two games this season at defensive tackle, along with uh, sophomore Davion Nixon in the middle. So, I mean, Iowa's defensive line hasn't produced the sack numbers that's wanted to see, but they've been constantly getting in opposing backfields. But like, like you mentioned, Iowa State has a very experienced offensive line, so I'm I'm really excited to be watching the battle in the trenches because I, I think one of the biggest things for Iowa and what their kind of game plan, especially with a thin secondary, is they're going to bring the heat on Brock Purdy because he hasn't played in this rivalry, because he's a true sophomore. Uh, they're going to try to put a lot of pressure on him and just force him into some mistakes. Yeah, I do think that matchup with Epinesa is probably the big one to watch. I think if Iowa State can protect Brock Purdy and give him time in the pocket, that's kind of the key to getting things going. I think that, obviously, I think they got to be able to run the ball a little bit, but if he has time in the pocket and feels comfortable, that's what kind of sets him up well because you know he's proven to be a pretty good decision maker. But it's that pressure. I think that's the, probably the biggest concern um, going into this game, and it starts with – Epinesa and there's two parts to it and I think you kind of alluded to both of them one is you know Matt Campbell called Epinesa a generational talent a guy that you've got to pay a lot of attention to now of course he wasn't willing to give us 
you know, their game plan. Uh, he was asked about how they might use their tight ends. Um, and he kind of talked about how they just, in general, how they've been using them. They, they almost always go 11 personnel now, at least, at least 11 personnel with one tight end out there. I think early years under Campbell, they didn't have the tight ends. Um, he'll tell you that when he got to Iowa State, they didn't have a scholarship tight end. Uh, so it's taken some time for them to get mm. to this point. Um, but now you're almost always seeing a tight end out there. Uh, against you and I, we saw times where they had three tight ends out there. So they are doing more with the tight ends, and I think especially in this game they're going to have to. Dylan Sainer is probably the one to watch. Uh, he's listed as their F, which is kind of like an H-back uh, in the backfield, but he also attaches and plays in line. He's 6'7", 270. If you look at him, he probably looks more like an offensive tackle. Uh, he can really run. Uh, that doesn't really matter for the blocking side of it, but I, I imagine they're going to use him a little bit to try to double-team Epinesa, maybe chip at him, um, things like that. So I think that's probably the main way they go about it. But then you mentioned the other part, and this is what Campbell brought up. The toughest part about double-teaming him is that you know he really likes their other defensive end. And so if you put so much focus on Epinesa that – you know, it causes something else on the other side. Um, it's kind of a moot point. So I think that's probably their biggest challenge is how do you work around that? You know, if you double team him, how can your other side of the line hold up? Um, and so that's probably the, the big question. I think if Iowa State can, can give him time, that's probably the biggest key to me offensively for Iowa State because um, if, if Iowa's disruptive the whole game and Iowa State can't run the ball, that – that completely limits stuff and it puts a lot of pressure on the defense like the UNI game where, you know, the defense gave up only six points in regulation. The offense actually gave up one of the regulation touchdowns on a, on a fumble taken back for a touchdown. So the defense gave up six points in regulation, didn't allow uh, UNI to run the ball. But if Iowa State can't score, it puts a lot of pressure on them, especially uh, against Iowa, um, who has a lot more talent at those skill positions than UNI, of course. So uh, that's that's a big matchup to me, and I'm interested to see how Iowa State attacks it because I've kind of seen some of the first Iowa games, and I've seen how those teams have attacked it. Um, but you know, you can leave yourself vulner vulnerable if if you're if you double him and don't pick things up elsewhere. Yeah, something that's worth noting too is during Iowa season opener, they, they, I mean, they kept Epinesa in one spot. There really wasn't much defensive line movement. And that's why, you know, Epinesa just had to continually bull rush and try to split between the two, his two blockers, because again, he'd primarily be double teamed. But they made a lot of adjustments in that second week uh, when they went up against Rutgers. At times, they would have Cedric Ladmore or Davion Nixon, like I mentioned switch and push to that outside right as the ball snapped and then they had Epinesa run around through the middle so Nixon and Ladmore absorbed two or three blockers even and Epinesa had a free run at the quarterback and, and that that I mean that's a scary sight when you get, when you got Epinesa charging full speed at you so I, I'm interested to see if Iowa State kind of uses caution when throwing those double teams and if they look for you know sort of that kind of bait and switch tactic that that Iowa showed against Rutgers because it wouldn't shock me if Iowa just continued to build off that strategy, especially considering how effective it was uh, last weekend against Rutgers. Yeah, and I think it might also be important for Iowa State to get Purdy out of the pocket a little bit more, um, you know, to keep keep Iowa honest a little bit because he didn't run the ball. That's been the big topic, um, you know, here in, in the middle part of the state is that he didn't run the ball against you and I at all. He, had, he got sacked twice, but his one run was a nine-yard touchdown run. That was a scramble in the game that actually got called back. So officially, he didn't run the ball. That's something he did really well last year. I think he rushed 79 times for uh, 432 yards last year, 5.45 yards per carry last year when adjusted for sacks. That's a big part of his game, but he didn't do it in the opener. And so people want to know why. They want to know if he's going to do it more here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and so I think that's a big big area to watch probably is, is what do they do with Brock Purdy in the run game and outside the pocket? Because I think, um, you know, 
you don't want him running for his life. And I think a, a little bit you you got to try to game plan around that. And that's what's going to be interesting. But what do you think are kind of the the big matchups? I think that's probably, to me, um, you know, I did, I did a call. You might have done it too with, with 24-7 Sports. I think we're going to have a matchup video coming this week. Um, and they asked me my, my biggest key. And that was, that's the one I told them was, you know, that was the biggest key, the Iowa State's offensive line versus Iowa's uh, defensive line. But what are your kind of your big keys, you think, or that the, the matchups that maybe intrigue you the most? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I, I think Iowa needs to be able to run the football. Uh, like I mentioned, you and I mentioned earlier, Iowa State's front seven is tremendous. They, they stopped the run against Northern Iowa. Uh, and Iowa, again, so far this season, they've shown they can run the football, but Iowa needs to do it because they need to alleviate pressure off of Nate Stanley. Again, he's taken a lot of pressure off himself through these first two games, but he knows how important this game is, uh, even to his own legacy, I, I, I think, because if he can go and be 3-0 starting-wise against Iowa State, I do think that goes a long way in kind of where he sits in Iowa right now. Uh, and, I, you know, you don't want him reverting back to those old habits uh, maybe of trying to create too much, trying to put too much pressure on himself. And if Iowa can't run the football, uh, you know, he might just do that. And I think that's a very big concern for me. Another matchup, it, it's actually interesting. I think it's on both sides, uh, the wide receivers versus defensive backs. Uh, I, my big question for Iowa State has been, how are they going to, who's going to step up? Who's going to be the playmaker without David Montgomery, without David Montgomery, tremendous player, Hakeem Butler, I thought was extremely undervalued as a wide receiver in the NFL draft. Uh, especially because of how thin Iowa's secondary is. I'm interested to see if if uh, Campbell doesn't not, not abandon the kind of, you know, pick your poison 6.8 yards per pass attempt, I think was against Northern Iowa. But if they try to take more shots downfield uh, with only having, you know, to make potentially two defensive backs with, you know, substantial experience uh, because the backup guys, if Hankins can't go, at least my best guess is obviously Kirk and, Phil Parker, defensive coordinator Phil Parker, aren't going to mention it, is a redshirt freshman Terry Roberts and redshirt freshman DJ Johnson. And Johnson plays Iowa's uh, cash position in their 4 2 5, uh, which I'm not sure they're going to run much of, you know, because they don't have a lot of defensive backs right now. Uh, so I'm interested to see if uh, Purdy and Campbell decide to kind of open it up and try to take some shots downfield. Uh, and if that happens, like I mentioned earlier, it might be end up being a uh, being a shootout game and that's on both sides of the ball. If Iowa trusts Nate Stanley enough to throw those deep passes. And if Iowa's wide receivers continue to prove that they are legit because they look great th through the first two games, but you know, at least from covering the team, I never thought I'd live long enough to say, Hey, look, wide receivers are really, <laughs> it's a strength of Iowa's offense just because we we've never seen anything like it. Yeah. And based on the, what I've seen from the recruiting class, it seems like he'll, they're bringing in some good tight ends, so that's probably going to see another uptick. But if they can combine the tight ends with receivers, that goes a long way in, in, in that offense because I think, uh, you know, last year obviously all the talk probably from every team that got matched up with them was how do you defend two NFL tight ends? And it's just changed a lot in a year, uh, but it makes a different type of game plan for opposing teams is, you know, you're kind of – not to say Iowa's tight ends won't still be involved, but, you know, you probably game plan first for, you know, a couple of those – receivers and in, in that running game and that running game I, I would agree with you I think slowing Iowa's run is probably one of the biggest keys for Iowa State because their run sets up their pass so much with the play action and like you said take some of the pressure mm -hmm. off Stanley and, and Campbell said that he said you know you probably have to start with the run game with them I think he said that um, you have to play a physical 
brand of defense against Iowa. Um, and that, you know, if they can slow the run, that at least gives them a chance to be competitive throughout the full game. Um, so I think that's where it's going to start probably um, defensively for Iowa State is, you know, is Iowa able to really move the ball on the ground? Because I think that really opens up that offense and that play action. And that's, you know, that play action is really what can kind of, you, you know, they might run, 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 and then kind of lull you to sleep and all of a sudden throw a bomb with that play action. So I think that's really going to be interesting on that side of the ball. And then, like I said, I think my, my key probably, if I had to make one for the other side, is just can Iowa State's offensive line slow down Epinesa? You know, those are really probably the keys on both sides of the ball for me. But I'm sure there's some other there little ones. You know, you mentioned Iowa State's wide receivers. They've got talented wide receivers, you know, DeSante Jones, uh, is really used in the short game. He had 14 catches on 16 targets in the opener. Uh, just a crazy number of, of targets. Yeah. Um, the most most targeted receiver since Matt Campbell's been at Iowa State, uh, looking back, that, that was the most targets they've ever had. And a lot of that is screen stuff where they'll, where they'll set him up. Um, but they didn't really take any shots down the field in the opener. They only had two, two passes of 15-plus yards. Um, and so, you know, people have wondered that too. I brought up the Purdy thing. People wanted to know why Purdy wasn't running that's been the other question is why didn't they take shots? And, you know, people have all sorts of, I, I don't know if it's a conspiracy or a myth, but, you know, some people think, oh, maybe they didn't want to show Iowa their full playbook yet and, and that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of reasonings. That, that's kind of where I was leaning as well. Yeah. If they would really, if they were trying to just hide it from Iowa. But I, I think that point almost gets negated when you look at the fact that it was a triple overtime game. I mean, they nearly lost. And, that, and that's what I, we were talking about this up in the press box about some of these different things during the game. And it's like, Okay, if that is the reason, by the time it gets to halftime at three nothing or whatever, then you probably open up the playbook. So, I mean, there's all sorts of thoughts, and and that's why this game's so interesting. Is we've only seen a, a, a one game sample of Iowa State, and how much is going to change from that game? Are they going to take shots down the field that they didn't against you and I? Is Brock Purdy going to run the football that he like he didn't against you and I? Uh, so much could change offensively. It could be the same. But I just don't think we really know, um, and I think that's what makes it so hard for for people to predict this game in terms of what we're what to expect. Whether you're not even talking about like predicting who wins or whatever, just predicting how the game's going to go. Because I just don't think we know what Iowa State's going to do from an offensive standpoint. I think defensively we know what they're going to do. You know, maybe Iowa Iowa has success, but we know what Iowa, Iowa State's going to try to do defensively. Uh, it's just offensively, there's just so many questions that came out of that first game. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the biggest question I had that I did want to ask you is, I mean, we'll, we'll have this in written form. I know you and I are kind of planning a question exchange. Uh, obviously, pay attention. Uh, it's 24-7 sports for that. But who, who are some guys that step up in the playmaking category? Because I do think that Purdy is a really good quarterback. I think he has a really bright future at Iowa State. Uh, but I don't want to say his numbers were inflated because he's using the the uh, weapons they had around him. I mean, you could say the same thing about Nate Stanley, but who are some guys that could step up in the playmaking category to kind of make up for David Montgomery and Hakeem Butler again, who I think were two, two maybe all time players for Iowa state and tremendous football players who I think have a bright NFL future. Yeah. I, d I definitely don't expect Purdue to complete 72% of his passes as the season goes along. I mean, that was helped by uh, a lot of those screen passes and stuff like that. So, um, It'll be interesting to see how, how that goes. But that is the big question here is uh, who steps up. I think running back, they feel really good, but they've got to figure out who the guy is. Uh, last week, they started Johnny Lang, looked good. Brees Hall comes in, has some nice runs. And then all of a sudden, they bring in Sheldon Cronin. He's kind of the guy into overtime. So it sounds like that battle is now going to go a few more weeks. 
all the buzz has been about Brees Hall, the, the true freshman. I think by the time this thing gets through several ga- more games and into conference play, I wouldn't be shocked if he kind of emerges. But as you know, I think probably with Tyler Goodson and, and some of those young running backs that have come through, it takes time for those guys to pick up pass protection and really be able to play every snap. And I think that's where they're kind of probably at with Brees Hall is he still has to come along a little bit in some areas. But in terms of a runner, I think they think he's a high-level talent uh, in in his future. So I think he's probably the guy that eventually maybe becomes the workhorse, uh, but they're not really willing to say yet. And I think that first game, you know, they had like three guys with 40 plus yards and it's just hard to to pinpoint, but at receiver, they really have to have a deep threat step up. You know, Michael Petway uh, had both of their receiving touchdowns. One of his other targets was in the end zone. He seems to be their go-to guy in the, in the end zone. Um, he came from Arkansas, was Arkansas's leading receiver last year on a not very good team and a not, and a team without really good quarterback play. Um, you know, so him and DeSante Jones were kind of the guys, but I think the two guys to watch this week probably would be Tariq Milton. You know, he was their second leading receiver last year, was not really involved in the first game, but he's supposed to be their vertical threat. Uh, and then Joe Skates is a guy that I'm really intrigued by, a redshirt freshman. Uh, he's probably their best receiver just in terms of pure talent, but it's still taking him time to come along. And he was out on the field in week one but didn't really get targeted. So it's going to be interesting to see if that changes. But, you know, the one area that I think that, you know, could help that receiver position is their tight ends. Uh, I think they were targeted a fourth of the time in the opener. You know, that's that's the most they've been targeted in a long time, and that's led by Charlie Kohler, who had four catches on four targets uh, in the opener. So he's probably someone they're going to probably target a lot uh, almost every week now just because they don't have Hakeem Butler, and that's probably the biggest thing is last year Brock Purdy had that safety blanket. This year he doesn't have it yet. We don't know who that is, you know, where you could just throw it up to in, in a critical moment. Uh, and maybe that becomes someone like Charlie Kohler in the red zone, or maybe it becomes Joe Skates, their redshirt freshman. But I think they feel like they've got a lot of talent, but uh, it might take a few more games, and, and they better hope that some of those guys are ready against Iowa. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. So, uh, yeah, the biggest thing I think that Iowa needs to do, and it's something that I think Iowa State could look to exploit, on the other hand, is I felt like one of Iowa's biggest defensive problems over the last I don't know, maybe season, season till up to the last season up to this point has been over the middle routes. They haven't really had that, that big time, you know, linebacker that can cover over the middle of the field. So teams kind of picked apart Iowa on those, you know, seven yard slant routes over and over and over again. Those would lead to some 15, 20 yard catches. So especially looking at just the stat line of Brock Purdy and Deshante Jones and a couple other of those guys, I'm thinking, well, if that's what their game plan is against Iowa, that, that might not be a bad game plan, but I will say Jimon Colbert, uh, he was he played safety in high school, came to Iowa thinking he was going to be the next Bob Sanders. About the second weekend, they said, no, you're going to put on 30 pounds and you're going to be like Christian Kirksey or Anthony Hitchens. Uh, so he's done that, and he has a lot of experience, played well against Iowa State last year, specifically in the run. But he has those those the pass-covering ability just from high school. So I'm interested to see how he steps up. But that over-the-field game, I think screen-wise, Iowa will will be okay. But if 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 Iowa State really tries to exploit the medium passes and they do it consistently, then maybe you're on a play-action deep threat. Uh, you know that 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 could spell some trouble. I think for Iowa. So I'm interested to see what what uh, Phil Parker kind of schemes up to kind of uh, retaliate that. Yeah, like I said, only two of Purdy's 30 completions were 15 plus yards. They just didn't go down the field much and. Um, that was because they they said post game they said it again this week that you and I's game plan was to 
played really deep. They really played off the ball in terms of their corners and stuff. And so Iowa State, you know, Campbell said Purdy took what they gave what they gave him, and um, maybe Iowa comes with the same game plan, and you know, Iowa State does the same. But I do think even in that, they have to be able to take a few more shots down the field because you got to you have to have that big play somewhere. Um, I mean, there's it gets to the point where they move the ball, but then maybe you and I tightened up a little bit when they got across midfield, and that's where some of their troubles came. So, and some of it was self-inflicted. They got to the eight-yard line uh, one time, and uh, Josh Kniffel, the right guard's helmet, came off. He kept blocking, and he got a penalty for blocking without a helmet, and that set him back, and they kicked the field goal. They they were on their way to score on that drive. They had a blindside block, which is that new rule um, that's kind of a learning moment for them. So there were some weird things in that first game. Uh, but also a lot of things offensively that left some questions and, uh, you know, maybe gave people a game plan. But Iowa State will probably take what they can get if, if Iowa plays similarly. Uh, but they have to be able to take some shots, and that's probably the big question. But anything else from you uh, about this game, or is that about do it? I think uh, I, I do want to – do you want to – by the way, I want to say about that penalty when he blocked without the helmet. I don't think I've – I felt so bad for him because I don't think I've ever seen a football player get so hyped up over a player after a block yeah, he because yelling. he lost his mind. And I, I was all about it. <laughs> it was it was awesome to see. Uh, you know, other than that, I mean, if you want to save your final prediction for our pieces later in the week, we can do that. Otherwise, I think we've about about covered everything. Yeah, I, I might need a little bit more time. I I probably lean Iowa right now um, just with everything, and I just don't know enough about Iowa State so far. Uh, but I just really don't know what to do yet. So we can leave it for that and uh, and uh, make people wait a yeah, little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what I got. That's that's basically what I got too. I, it, I hate to sound like a tease, but I'm slightly leaning Iowa, but at the same time, I think that Iowa State's going to pull out some punches that uh, I think a lot of people aren't going to see coming. I think Brees Hall's going to, I don't want to say I have a coming out party, but I think he's going to have a nice game. Uh, and I'm interested to see how Iowa defends DeSante Jones. And if they can't do that, uh, you know, it could get interesting because Iowa singled out Rondale Moore last year against the game when they played Purdue. And Rondale Moore only had six catches for, I think, 39 yards, which is a really good defensive effort. But they had their Purdue's fourth leading receiver go for 150 yards and three touchdowns. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what uh, Phil Parker does there. But, uh, you know, other than that, I, I can't give a final prediction yet either. I would have if you were going to, but I'm, I don't think I'm ready to do that quite yet. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't put me on the spot. I won't put you on the spot. So, uh, we can end it there, but, uh, thanks everyone for listening. You can check out, um, you know, both sites, Iowa and Iowa state over at 24 seven sports, and we'll have plenty of coverage. We'll do some stuff here in the final days before kickoff with each other in terms of some of the matchups and, and maybe even some predictions. So, uh, thanks for listening and make sure to check out 24 seven sports, uh, for everything else.